turn to the reading of the Word of God. We're going to be reading from two different passages uh, linked very strongly. The first we'll read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, 11 to 17. And then we'll hop back to 1 Kings 17, 17 to 24. And we read these, and it would be good for us to pay attention to all the parallels, all the similarities between the two accounts. Before we read these portions of God's Word, let's pray together. God, we come before you humbly as those who recognize our own mortality, and then gladly as those who recognize your power to raise the dead. You give life inside you give life in the flesh we pray that you would cause us to have our hearts stirred by your great power today we pray in Jesus name amen Luke 7 starting in verse 11 soon afterward Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him as he approached the town gate a dead person was being carried out the only son of his mother and she was a widow And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Then we flip back to 1 Kings 17, starting in verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. The boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. This widow from Zarephath was living a blessed life. We can get you caught up if you weren't here last week, because the passage from last week is very important for understanding this week. This, this widow and her son were living in Zarephath. Zarephath is not a a town in Israel. It's a town near Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon, right along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And Zarephath is right next to the city of Sidon, which was ground zero for Baal worship. This is where Baal's 
the very heart of Baal's territory was. And so the prophet Elijah had gone there in the midst of this three and a half year long famine the Lord had sent to smite the rain god Baal to prove himself to be the true God. And this, this widow is about to starve to death. She has only a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil left. She's going to go make this bread or make the flour and the oil into bread. She's going to eat it and she and her son are going to die. The prophet Elijah shows up and he asks for the last part of her bread. And she ends up giving it to him and he promises her by the power of God that as long as there is no rain upon the earth, there will be flour in the jar and oil in the flask. And the Lord kept His word. It's interesting that the Lord didn't drop a two-ton flour sack into her house. And He didn't give her a 40-gallon vat of oil. He expected her to trust Him day after day after day to keep His word. And morning by morning, as the song says, new mercies she saw. She had been on death's doorstep. But then she had been given hope. And she lived in that hope. But then suddenly, her world comes crashing down around her. Her son becomes ill. And he gets worse and worse until finally... He dies. What a contrast. What a contrast from the, the joy and the elation and the salvation of having the all-you-can-eat flour jar and the all-you-need flask of oil going from that. All of a sudden, now the sun is dead. What a, what a contrast. What a confusing time this must have been for her. Just imagine that you are in your car. You're going down a two-lane highway. I grew up in rural Wisconsin. We had all kinds of two-lane highways. There's no shoulders. There's car ditch trees. And so you're going down this two-lane highway, and you're going maybe 60 miles an hour, and you see another car coming the other way going about 60 miles an hour. You're closing at a, at a rate of 120 miles an hour. You, you notice, though, that he's not in his lane. He's in your lane. And you and your son in the back seat are running down the highway, and you're closing very quickly this car. And as you get closer, you hope he's going to look up from his cell phone or he's going to wake up or whatever he needs to happen and get back into his lane. At the last moment, you realize he's not going to get back into his lane. And so you throw your wheel over and you go into his lane. Your mirrors slam. Glass goes everywhere. But you are still alive. Nearly escaped death for you and your son. You get home, you get out of the car, your son dies of a heart attack on the driveway. You missed one form of disaster for another. And so it was for this widow at Zarephath. And she seems understandably to be shocked. How can this be? The Lord brought life to my house. How does he bring death? The Lord had said, I would have flour and oil for me and my son and this prophet until there was rain. There's no rain and there's no sun. How can the Lord have made this promise to me? How can the Lord have come and brought salvation to my house and then snatch my son right out from me? 
Is he being vindictive? Is he visiting my sins upon me? Remember, she was just recently a pagan. It takes time for worldviews to change. She's just recently a pagan, and the pagan gods were vindictive. They might give you something good only to take it away from you. So she wonders, is Israel's God, is this God who, who acted like he brought life, has he actually come to torment me? And in the moment of her grief, she points the finger at Elijah and she lays the blame for her son's death at his feet. We see this in verse 18. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son. Did you come? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? What are you emotional language? She is deeply grieving and she points to the to the nearest object of anger says, "Did you come here to torment me? You acted like you came to bring life. But now look, you brought death. Have you come? What did you come here for? Why are you here? What have you done? What good is flour and oil if we're just going to die anyways? Now imagine what the casual observer would have thought. The casual observer, Joe or Jane Pagan living in town, yeah, see, Israel's God. He came with his bag of tricks. He brought some flour and some oil. He saved. But now look, the son is dead. See, his, his power, it ran out. And now, the, now the gods of this land have decided that the son is going to die. He's not so great a god after all. I mean, even the king and queen of his own country don't think he's so great a God after all. The context of all this is the battle between the gods. And so it seems as though Israel's God has lost the battle. Now the Lord is free to give and take away. You see that with the story of Job. Job loses everything in the matter of just a few verses. And in the losing everything... His friends say, curse God and die. Even his wife says it. What an encouragement. But he doesn't. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But this is different. This is different because this woman had been promised life. God had promised her life. He had promised her and her son life. Was he, was he just toiling? Was he just toying with her? What has happened? And why has it happened? She struggles to find a reason for what has happened. And so she points the finger at the only person she thinks she can point the finger at. She points it at Elijah. You did this to me. Now, if you're Elijah, how do you respond? How do you respond if you are the prophet? Give me a break. I came here, and you were about to die. You and your son were going to eat your little last pathetic piece of bread and you were going to die. You were just waiting to die. And I came and you had bread and you had oil and you got to live all these extra days 
together. And not only that, but now you belong to the true God and you're still alive. How do you say it's worse than I've come? Can't you just be grateful for what you have instead of being upset for what you don't? Or maybe you say, let me tell you about this guy named Job. See, he lost way more than you lost, and he responded a lot better than you're responding. Or maybe, maybe you say, you know, God is sovereign over all things, and his ways are a mystery to us. Sometimes we don't understand why he's doing what he's doing, and we just trust him. Of course, that third way is true. And much better than the first, although oftentimes if you're meeting somebody who has this kind of grief, it's better just to listen, to cry, and to pray with them. But Elijah doesn't give any of those responses. He simply says, give me your son. Now again, we meet this woman in a situation where she has nothing to lose. Right? Last week we met her, she's in this situation, and Elijah asks for part of the last little bit of bread she has, and what does she have to lose? If she dies a few minutes earlier, is it really that significant? And here, too, the son is already dead. What does she have to lose in giving the dead body of her son to the prophet? The prophet, through whom God has already bent the laws of nature a number of times, and so she, she gives the body of her son to the prophet. And he takes the body of her son and he goes up to the room where he was staying and he lays this body on his bed. Then we read this in verse 20. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Maybe ironically, Elijah doesn't argue with the woman at all. But he certainly seems to argue with the Lord. He says, Lord, you, you brought life to this home. You brought salvation to this home. And you promised, you promised, you promised bread until there was rain for her and her son and for me. You did all those things and now do you bring tragedy upon this home? How can this be, Lord? How can you do this? I don't understand how this can be how you would act after the way you have acted so far and after you have planned and purposed to give this woman and her household life. You notice Elijah doesn't say, God, this is unfair. Or God, this is unjust. He doesn't say that. He says, God, you have planned and purposed something else. Elijah pleads with the Lord to do what he has already planned and what he has already said he was going to do. That's a safe prayer. It's safe to pray that God does what he has already said he is going to do. So Elijah pleads with the Lord. He takes up the widow's cause before the Lord. And then we see what Elijah's method is. Verse 21. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. Seems kind of an awkward way to go about trying to raise somebody from the dead. Stretches him out three times 
lays upon him three times. Now, what exactly he's trying to do here is uncertain to us. Maybe as the embodiment of the Word of God in some limited sense, he's, he's hoping that by laying upon this, this boy these three times that the life in the Word of God will come into this boy. We don't really know, but what we do know is that Elijah knows that he doesn't have the strength to raise this boy. That if this boy is going to be raised from death to life, it's going to be because God has done it, not because Elijah has done it. So then we see what happens after Elijah's prayer and Elijah's action in verse 22. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. And the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. What an understated event. I mean, if, if my son had died and then he was alive, I would have all kinds of questions. How? What did you do? What did you say? What happened? What was it like when he, when he spoke his first word? What was it like when he coughed? Did he cough or did he speak? Did he stir first? Did he just, did he just sit up? What was it like when his body got warm again? What was it like when, when color returned to his face? Who and how and what? And where is he? Give him to me. None of that. We just get very simple. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. It's simple. And it's glorious. It's not important how. It's only important who. The widow didn't raise her son to life. The prophet didn't raise this boy to life. None of the pagan gods raised this boy to life. And the boy certainly didn't raise himself from the dead. The Lord raises the dead. I think there are three things we really should take away. We really should take away from this boy coming back to life after he was dead. The first that shows us that the Lord keeps his word. He may not keep it the way you expect him to keep it. I'm sure this widow had no inclination whatsoever that her son was going to die and come back to life. That's precisely what God did. God had promised that there would be enough flour and oil for this woman, for her son, and for the prophet until the rains came. And now there is flour, and there is oil, and there is life for this woman, for her son, and for the prophet, just as God has said there would be. God keeps his word, even if it means raising the dead to do it. The second thing we see is that the Lord is powerful everywhere and not powerless outside of Israel. The Lord has gone outside of Israel and has done the greatest of deeds. He has raised the dead even outside of Israel. In, in the pagan mind, different gods had different powers in different places. And we'll see this in just two chapters when the Israelites have a battle with the Syrians, not the Assyrians, it's very confusing, Syrians and Assyrians, but they have a battle with the, with the Syrians, and the Syrians lose, and the Israelites win. And the conclusion of the Syrian army is not, Israel's God is the true God. We need to convert. No, instead in 1 Kings 20, we see that they say, their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain. 
and surely we will be stronger than they. I will say more about that when we come to it in a couple chapters. But for now, suffice to say that Israel's God is not limited in his power to one place. He is powerful in Israel. He is powerful in Baal's backyard. And the same is true today. He is powerful here at First Church in Lansing, Illinois. And he is powerful in the United States of America and in Turkey and in Iran and China and every other place. In fact, God is powerful even in death itself. God has power. There is nowhere which cannot be reached by the power of our God. And then third as well, we see that God is the most powerful being. God is the most powerful being. I want I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm going to say because I don't want the presbytery to get calls on my orthodoxy in the next week. But the the false gods of the Canaanites were not entirely false. Now, they're false in that they're not God. And they're false in that they're not able to do what they promised to do. And they are mute idols. They have no power. But standing behind those idols are wicked spirits. The power of Satan and his demons seeking to keep the peoples of the earth enslaved in darkness and sin. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The bales, they were used as instruments of wickedness to keep the peoples of the area enslaved in darkness, and there was spiritual power behind them, just like the magicians in Egypt had spiritual power behind them. It's just that God is the only true God. That He has power over every power, whether it be a nation of the earth, whether it be a spirit, a wicked spirit. We see Jesus. He walks up to the demoniacs filled with a, a legion of demons, and all He has to say is, come out, and they come out. There may be power in the demons, but there is ultimate power in our God. And so we see that God, our God, has the greatest power. You see, Baal, Baal, this is a battle between the gods, right? This is a war between the gods. Who is the true God? Is Baal God or is the Lord God? Baal had limitations. In the, in the mythology of the Canaanite religions, Baal had limitations. He could do many things, but he was not Almighty God. For instance, Baal could not go into death and pull people out. The death God was stronger than Baal. The death God, Mot, would not allow any other God to come into the underworld. There was no way to come out of death. But our God chose himself to have no limits. Our God is able to go and knock down the doors of death itself, and pull out whomever he wants. So God wins again. God is powerful over Baal, 
there's no rain. And he's powerful over moat. Even death is not more powerful than the God of Israel. And we see the psalmists, they celebrate this power of God over all the other so-called gods. We read in Psalm 96, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Then we see these joyful, emotional responses of both Elijah and the woman. Look at verses 23 and 24. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Now, you must imagine that Elijah was a little surprised himself. People don't come back from the dead very often. And if you're the one who gets to be part of it, that's even more surprising. There's not even a place recorded in the Scriptures before this where somebody comes back from the dead. You almost get the sense that Elijah is kind of shooting in the dark. He knows God can do it, but he has no concrete reason to think that God must do it. So he comes down and brings this boy and says, Look! Look! Your son lives! And she says this, the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. Now you know. The all-you-can-eat flour jar wasn't enough. The flask wasn't enough, but perhaps it was. Perhaps now she's just saying, my faith was so deeply shaken by the son's death, but now I know. Now I know, and I will never doubt that the word from your mouth is the word of the only true God. Now remember back to the story of Jesus raising the widow's son at Nain. There's so many similarities. There's a widow, a widow's only son. There's a widow's only son who's dead. There's great grief. There's a son who's raised to life. And there's an acknowledgement that this is a great prophet who is in their midst. All these things are in common. The two stories are meant to be read together, but there's one big difference. See, Elijah goes up into his room. He lays the boy on the bed, stretches himself out on the boy those three times, and he pleads with the Lord that the Lord would please raise this boy from the dead. But Jesus... Jesus walks up to the funeral procession, offers no prayer, offers no laying of himself. He just simply says, young man, I say to you, get up. Elijah raises the dead by someone else's power. Jesus raises the dead by his own power. Elijah is an instrument of God. Jesus is God. And so Jesus is so much greater than Elijah that the gulf between them cannot be measured. And this woman, she recognizes that Elijah is this great prophet. And the people in Jesus' day also say a great prophet has come among us, but they go one step further. 
And they say, God has come to his people. And they were right. God had come to his people. The God who raised the widow's son then was the same God who raised the widow's son at name. And it is Jesus who holds the keys to death itself. This is exactly what Jesus says in Revelation. John encounters the glorified Christ in his vision and revelation. And he says to John, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. One Old Testament scholar, Ian Proven, said, Even the underworld is not a place from which the Lord can be barred. You know, there are nine specific people who are raised from the dead. There are others who are raised in groups. But there are nine specific stories of the dead being raised in the Scriptures. But one of them is unique from all the rest. Because all the rest of them were raised by somebody else. Only one of them was raised by his own power. And that was Jesus. If we, hop, if we hop over to John 10, verse 18, we read this. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. I've said it before, and I'm, I'm sure that I will say it again. Everyone takes a turn in the casket. Everyone. And one day, sooner or later, it will be your turn in the casket. People will cry. At least you hope people will cry. They'll tell stories. They'll have a, a funeral of some sort or another. And then we'll pray prayers at a graveside. We'll place your body in the ground, and that will be that. And there your cold, lifeless body will lay. And there your cold, lifeless body will lay until the same Son of God who raises the dead in the Scriptures comes from heaven with the trumpet sound of God and cries out to you, whatever your name may be, Bob, Billy, Ben, Susan, come out! And you come out. And you come out. Not because you are so great. Not because you have some kind of power to say, alright, I know that I'm dead, but it's time. I've been dead long enough. No, you come out because the Son of God, who has the power over death itself, tells you to come out. And you come out different. You see, all those other eight people, they came out of the grave, but the irony is that they went back into it. They're all dead. You don't see Lazarus walking around. You don't see the widow's son walking around. He, he lived again, but he died again. We don't know how. We don't know when. But we know that he died again. But not you. When you live again, you live forever. Because when you live again, you live like Jesus. And when Jesus came out of the grave, he lived forever. In a perfect body. Immune from all of the effects of sin. 
And since you belong to Jesus by faith, you too, when you come up out of the grave on that glorious last day, you too will live forever in a perfect body and in a new creation even greater, if you can imagine, than Eden. And we have that power. We have that hope. We have that hope that we will come out of the grave for one simple reason. Because we belong to the one who has the power to kick down the doors of death and take out anyone that he wants. And he wants you. Lord Jesus, you are the one with power over death. With power to give life. Great Heavenly Father, you are the one who elects from before there was time. And in your providence, you chose this widow at Zarephath and her son, And by that same grace, you have chosen us to receive your Spirit, to be given new hearts, new birth, and faith. And with all of this, with all of this glorious gift comes eternal life and the resurrection of the dead that even more glorious than heaven itself will be the new heavens and the new earth. Where we live with you, the one who has raised all your people from the dead. God, set this hope before our eyes. Let it drive us. That when we stare our own mortality in the face, that we might have peace knowing that you are the one who holds the keys to death. We thank you. By your grace, we belong to you. We pray in the matchless, great name of Jesus Christ. Amen.